Welcome back to the SIDCast, and I am your host, Sid Finkelstein, and today our guest is Mark Myers, an innovative journalist who writes for the Wall Street Journal. Um, He has two incredible columns. One is called House Call. The other one is called The Anatomy of a Song. He is an author, and he is uh, a blogger extraordinaire in the world of jazz. His uh, blog is called Jazz Wax, and it's won awards many, many times. And if you, if you want to know anything about jazz, he is, uh, he is the guy. It has become a true life, uh, life passion. Uh, but, they, but, you know, Mark, Mark Myers also has something else going for him. He's a really interesting guy and a really good person. And so it's a, such, a, such a fun opportunity to have him on the SIDCast and to talk to him and, um, about his career, about his life, about lessons learned along the way. I first met uh, met Mark actually three years ago when he uh, he reached out to me after the publication of my book Super Bosses and I thought that was pretty cool. Here's this guy that uh, once uh, is really into uh, music, writes for the Wall Street Journal, and wanted uh, wanted to talk to me about uh, Super Bosses and uh, and we met for uh, for tea in uh, in New York and had a nice uh, had a great conversation, kind of hit it off a little bit. And he was writing a column called Playlist or the Playlist at that time and. Uh, um, and the premise of that was that he would interview someone um, and then write it in their in their own voice, a, a short uh, column talking about a, a song that had a big influence on their on their lives. And uh, um, and for me, it was uh, Joni Mitchell's "All I Want" from the Blue Album, which uh, which many people listening will know is one of the greatest rock. Uh, pop albums ever ever made and um, and still powerful to me uh, to this day and um, um, you know so so we're on the phone talking and he he asked me a bunch of questions and and then he puts it together in in my in my voice in first uh, kind of first uh, character and I found it kind of amazing because he got me to say a bunch of things and because it was printed in the Wall Street Journal, only two million plus people had access to looking at it. Uh, probably a lot more than that. And uh, and I talked about some personal stuff uh, there. And he he just knew knew how to do it. And uh, uh, really, one of his tremendous uh, his tremendous uh, skills is uh, is helping uh, you know building a level of trust where people are opening up to him and sharing things with him. And I, I have to say, when I created, or as I was creating the SIDCast, the actual podcast itself, um, I thought about Mark because here was a here was a master at being able to uh, create these conversations uh, with real people about real things that were meaningful to them, and uh, and and he did it. And so it was, it's such a such a pleasure for me to uh, welcome Mark to uh, to the SIDCast itself, so that we could talk and I can kind of ask him how he how he does what he what he does. Uh, his, um, uh, he writes regularly for the journal, you know, anatomy of a song and house call, fantastic columns and, and, uh, and each one is just so intricately put together. Um, in, in our conversation on the, on the SIDCast, I asked him, what does it take to be a journalist? Cause we're in an age of journalism today. That's, uh, not an easy age. I mean, what's the modern age of journalism? It's about fake news. It's about digitalization of of everything. Uh, it's about more writing available than ever ever before. That it's it's anyone can be a writer if they want through their own through their own blog. And not everything is of the highest caliber. So it's a tough it's a tough business. The model has changed dramatically. And uh, so what does it take? And he he told me three things. He said you got to be curious. And boy, did that ever resonate with with me? I don't think you can do any creative work or probably even any work if. If you weren't, uh, if you weren't really curious, uh, and then second, you need you need the ability to tell a story. 
And that, again, applies to everyone just about in almost any field. Anytime you want to communicate, in his case, it's in writing. For a lot of other people, it, it, it's going to be verbal. It's going to be in presentations. Can you, you, know, can you, tell, can you tell a story? And you have a passion. This is the third thing. Do you have a passion for the truth? And uh, those three things, uh, curiosity, ability to tell a story, passion for the truth, uh, that make up what a great journalist uh, uh, what, what you have to do and have to be able to do if you want to be a great journalist really uh, resonated because I think they apply to a lot of other, a lot of other walks of life. So um, it's just a real, uh, real treat to, uh, uh, to be able to talk to Mark and, uh, and kind of uh, get into the world of journalism, get into his world and his life and, and hear the story about how he became who he ended up becoming which is a pretty darn good and interesting journalist and jazz uh, aficionado. So let's welcome Mark Myers. Welcome back to the Sidcast, and as advertised, Mark Myers is here. Hey, Mark. Sid, how are you? <laughs> good, good. Last time we talked in person was probably a year or two ago um, for one of your Wall Street Journal columns. Um, playlist, I think. The, play, the playlist, right. right. Uh, you actually have several really interesting columns you do for the journal, don't you? Yeah. Like there's one about, it's, it's in the mansion section. Correct. House calls. House calls. Uh, and I just read not that long ago one um, with Olivia Newton-John. Right. Um, and then um, the anatomy of a song, is that? That's the big one. That's the big one. So yeah. are there three then? Uh, there were two now. There were yeah. three, yeah. but I needed time to write my book. <laughs> All right. Uh, right. So we um, we pulled the plug on playlist, and um, I'm, I've held on to house call and anatomy of a song. Right. So uh, how did you start with these columns? Most people would you know give their right arm to write anything for the Wall Street Journal. You got two columns going. It was an opportunity that came up. Uh, we were developing. You know, it depends upon which column. The house call column uh, started because the editor. Um, wanted she was new to the section the section was new and um, she was looking for new ideas Mm -hmm. you know and they had started they had started House Call but they were trying to do it um, by having other people write it, in other words, the source—if they were interv- if, if you were the subject of the house yeah. call—you would be expected to write it, and that lasted about two columns in before they realized that not everybody it's going to be a mess, <laughs> right? Not everybody can write, or wants half to the write. people don't want to write for free. Um, and I, you know, I suggested, well, why don't I do it as an oral history? Mm-hmm. Um, and the editor said, well, that's it's a great idea. And a couple of columns in, um, I, I said, why don't we just do it on childhood? And she said, well, childhood, that's, I don't understand, you know, what's, what's, I said, nobody does childhood. If you read any Vanity Fair feature or New Mm -hmm. York Times Magazine feature, they skip right over childhood. And childhood, you know, it's, it, nobody does it and everyone shares it. So the reader doesn't feel if they're reading about a violinist or a guitarist or Olivia Mm -hmm. Newton-John, well, I'm not an actor, why do I care? If it's childhood every week, then everybody can relate to it. Everybody's got, got that in common. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's classic because, you know. In the podcast, I ask about, you know, where are you from and what makes you tick? And I, you start with family. So why don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you grew up in New York City. Yeah. And um, what did your parents do? My parents were both artists. Uh, my father was a writer and cartoonist uh, for The New Yorker. Wow. And my mother wrote and illustrated children's books, which meant as a kid, 
uh, I had a heck of a time sitting under their desks um, mm-hmm. and catching the tossaways that weren't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was able to sort of color those in and fool around with you them. You had your own coloring book. Yeah, I'd go from desk to desk and, you know. Wow, that's fantastic. Tossed out stuff. So did they meet know? each other because they were in a similar line of business, so to speak? Yeah, they met. Actually, well, they were both in the film industry. Mm-hmm. My father used to do the uh, movie posters that would be outside of theaters. Uh-huh. Um, and he had an incredible ability to capture likeness. Um, so much so that during World War II, he was a war artist. Uh, the, once he got to Europe, the generals and admirals sent him all over Europe to paint their portraits. Really? So he spent World War II, thank God. Uh, if he didn't have that talent, uh, I might not be here. He may have been in, in battle. Yeah, and I might yeah. not be here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- basically they swapped him all over Europe because one general would get painted and that general would say, here's my painting to some other general or admiral. And that guy would say, hey, I'd love that guy to come down here and do me. And he, he, I'm sending him down and my father would hmm. go off to Rome with papers and they'd drive him down there by Jeep and he'd paint somebody wow. else's portrait. Yeah. That's amazing. And. Did you ever talk to him about that talent, where it came from? I think, it, like anybody, like any anybody during the Depression, it developed to get out of their circumstance. Yeah. His parents, you know, my father's father actually drowned in the Croton Reservoir, in the Crotona Reservoir in the Bronx, oh. when my father was twelve, oh, and they. My father and his brother, who was thirteen, watched him drown. They mm. stepped off a rock and went straight down. His father couldn't swim, so they had to go home and tell, his, tell their mother oh that the father had drowned. So I don't think he ever became normal after that. <laughs> I think he was always sort of way out. Yeah. Uh, so Wow. Yeah. Has that, uh, has that been something that you think back and think about, you know, father, fatherhood style? I mean, everyone has stories about crazy parents by definition, and those of us with kids, we're the crazy parents now. So that's, that's all okay, but uh, that, that man, that's pretty terrible, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what... He becomes creative as a result. And I think the creativity is to probably avoid dwelling on what he had witnessed and to stay optimistic and being creative and funny and all the other things that kids did. So Um, did you get into art as well? No, no. You know, I never had... Um, I was smart enough to know what I wasn't good at, mm-hmm. and art was one of them. Um, I could draw, uh, but I was never going to be as fast and as clever as my uh, father. Right. And uh, as far as piano goes, I took piano lessons for years, but I made the terrible mistake of playing Bill Evans' transcriptions, uh, Bill Evans being the pianist, yes. um, and you know, mastered a couple of those Transcriptions, but one day just closed the piano and realized I'm not going to be as good as this guy ever. Mm. And if I'm not, there's just no point. Um, That's really interesting what yeah. you're saying, Mark. Right? Because yeah. if you if you weren't going to be the best, you didn't want to do it. Correct. And yeah, that it just wasn't going to be worth the effort for me to not need- live up to my own um, vision of what something that sounds good on piano yeah. or something that looks good on paper right. should be. If I couldn't get to that point that in my brain I knew I knew where the standard high standard was, mm. if my ability couldn't take me to that high standard, I, I just felt uh, it wasn't worth investing time in. And you knew that as a, as a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew that I could always write and tell a story from fourth grade. And I compelled the fourth grade teacher to give me a template for a, a, a little classroom newspaper and I would sort of fill that in and yeah. e- each week and give the class its newspaper. So <laughs> newspaper, I guess newspaper work was always in my blood. You did the fourth grade newspaper for yeah. your class. Yeah, yeah. And where did that come from, do you think? Um, that, I think, 
came from the adventures of Superman, I'm afraid. <laughs> I know it's not as sophisticated an answer as you probably would love, but um, spending as much time as I did watching certain television shows mm-hmm. like The Adventures of Superman. To me, Superman wasn't interesting and Jimmy Olsen wasn't that interesting. And, um, uh, you know, the guy that flew, the guy that jumped out the window and yeah. could fly yeah. wasn't interesting. The person who was most interesting to me was Clark Kent, the guy with the glasses who was writing stories. The regular guy. The journalists. Just doing it, yeah, the yeah. journalists were more interesting to me than the guy that could who could fly. Wow. Um, so I think The Daily Planet yeah, if I'm confessing, yes. it's probably the Daily Planet that um, made I, me interested in. I was a regular reader myself of the Daily Planet, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, do you think that? Uh, I mean, you've been in journalism for for years. You know so many great journalists as well. Um, do you think that the, the the stories are somewhat similar from other people uh, about how they got into journalism? I mean, now so many people they go to Columbia program in journalism, which is, you know, the best program there is, and then they get a job somewhere. Mostly it's online and writing, but it's still writing. Uh, but coming up from, I don't know if it's grassroots or innate, is what you're describing. I, I think you need two passions to want to go into that line of work. Um, one is, um, well, three. You need to be curious. Yep. I think you need to be able to tell a story and at least organize your thoughts to the, to the extent that whatever you say can be followed by others mm-hmm. and enjoyed by others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, that you also need a passion for the truth. And if you, if the truth matters to you mm-hmm. and, and lying is a problem, you know, if, if, if the truth is something that's honorable for you and you're curious and you can tell a story, uh, invariably you're going to go into journalism in some, in some shape or form. Do you, do you find yourself coaching or advising young people that come to you, someone who knows someone? Um, I wish I had the time. <laughs> I just, I, I have no time for anything except I have to get my work done. Um, but, you know, as we're talking, um, the truth I think you've seen an enormous resurgence of newspapers today yeah. as a result of, obviously, the political times. But there's this incredible generation that's come up mm-hmm. um, that investigates stories, that, that tracks things down, mm-hmm. that seem to have come out of nowhere. I right. mean, everyone thought the newspaper business was dead in, yeah. the, in the 2000s. And now, wow, the biggest newspapers in the country are... Um, you know, they're towering, towering places. And, and they've gotten into, obviously, in a gigantic way, digital. Wall Street Journal, New York Times are mega players in the digital world. They finally figured it out. You it, know, in the beginning, it, in the it, 2000s, yeah. early mm-hmm. 2000s, um, the Internet was um, a laughing stock for mm-hmm. many editors. Mm-hmm. It was something they had to do, but it was never yeah. going to catch on. And right. print was where it was at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this stuff that's going on that you have to go onto the computer and yeah. search around, it's just never going to happen. And then at some point, they realized, it's the future, and yep. they capitalized on it, I think, quite skillfully I as a business story. The the Wall Street Journal, I think, had a subscription model pretty early on. They did. And New York Times did not. Correct. Uh, and so New York Times didn't think that that was going to be a big revenue stream, or maybe, as you say, they, they disrespected the whole, the whole business. I'm not sure, but they saw the light, and they must be making a fortune out of digital. I would think. It's funny. I always get uh, comments from people where... They'll say, oh, gosh, I want to read this article you did, but yeah. I can't get in. I, I, you know, they're asking me to subscribe. Uh-huh. And I invariably tell them, think of it as a restaurant. Like, you don't go out to eat and then run out the door. I mean, 
it's it's built into the program. You're going in to eat, and you're going to pay the bill. Yeah. I said, just look at it. It's it's the to me. It's I subscribe to six newspapers every day. I read six newspapers. It's it's a joy to spend money on newspapers. You yeah. know, isn't it interesting? It's though, so many people um, really resisted that, especially earlier on, because um, if you bought if you buy a physical newspaper, you're buying it for a buck or two, whatever it is. But online, uh, it had to be free. Uh, that was the mindset. It's the mindset with a lot online, um, you know. Except music, you know, music is you got to pay for music. But again, Spotify, you don't. So there are ways to listen to music yeah. without having to pay for it. So the the free model still exists. But the the idea that newspapers are a vital, that the news mm-hmm. is vital, yep. uh, especially coming from newspapers, not so much television, which I think most people see as entertainment. But the that that newspapers do honorable work that that's essential to our democracy, to our, our way of life, um, I think that's come into into fine focus only in the last probably five or six years. And maybe accelerated in the last couple, Definitely. two or three years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm thinking also of, uh, say, the retail business. So retail, of course, has been really decimated by not just Amazon, but just a gigantic sea change. And they're coming along or around, but not at a uh, I mean, even slower pace, if that's possible, than the newspaper business. Because um, not that long ago, I was at a conference, um, a summit of CEOs in the fashion retail business, and the, every single CEO of big, uh, they all gave speeches or panels, and virtually every CEO of um, um, of an established company would talk about online, digital. They talk about you know the need to have um, multiple points of contact. They all, they all knew that. But they, they weren't moving nearly at the pace that the smaller number of CEOs from smaller companies that were 100% digital, uh, that's what, that was in their, in their blood. And they talked about one, one guy who was the CEO, I think, of former CEO of Macy's made this point about how some, some people are, some companies, digital is, is native to them. They're like digital natives and others are immigrants to it. Right. And the immigrant challenge is just very, very difficult when it's just not in your, it's not in your, D, in your DNA. And you know you need to do it. You know you need to adjust, but it just takes longer. I also don't think a lot of these stores have a fine understanding of the consumer. I know that sounds ridiculous because they spend so many millions of dollars on consumer studies. Yeah. But I, I don't think they realize, I don't think they're fully aware of, of what a hassle it is to go into a store. <laughs> uh, in other words, the, you, you, know, you go into a store and there's a million aisles and you can't find anybody to show you where the mm-hmm. pens are mm-hmm. or, or some other some other thing. You go into Staples, this is, happens all the time. You go in there and you don't know where the folders are. You don't know where the envelopes are. It becomes this mm. pain in the neck, you know, wheel spinning experience. Yeah. Um, and um, once you find what you want, then, you know, it's another hassle. It's just a series of hassles. Yeah. Whereas clicking online, so, you know, instead of having to go to the drugstore, if I have to order three three Crest toothpastes at once mm-hmm. at Amazon for $17 when I would have spent five ninety nine for a Crest at a CVS, but will waste my time in there trying to find the aisle where it is. Yep. I just assume click, 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 buy the three things of Crest and call it a day. Yes, and join, and you're part of the part of the world, part so of the club. This is stores, what happens. Retail, retail, top of the list complaint is the inconvenience. The inconvenience, They yeah. inconvenience customers, and they don't realize it. I mean, they don't fully realize it. They so, think their environment is, you know, God's gift to shopping, and so, it's not. Yeah, the, the retail um, business is also talking a lot about experiences, 
creating exper- experience store. Well, not everything is an Apple store or even a Nike town. Those are kind of a league of their own. But uh, they want to create experiences and events and activities. And I think in the newspaper business that's happening, newspaper and magazine business, that's happening more and more, isn't it? I think so. I mean, the weekends seem to be devoted to more risk-taking in mm-hmm. terms of what you're seeing in a newspaper. Yeah. You know, you get your Sunday paper and you may not read anything in the New York Times magazine or the Wall Street Journal magazine mm-hmm. or the supplements, but wow, they're an Oh, they're, they're just an amazing art direction treat. You know, you go through, and the art direction is so fascinating. It's, 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 um, it's almost like a break. You know, they've, they're creating breaks in the action for you. Yeah. So it, that's, in mm-hmm. many respects, is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the experience. You think of the Sunday Times, and you think of, you know, <clears throat> you think of Maureen Dowd, or you think of... Um, uh, the review, you know, review section, or you think of uh, the different sections, but you each one has a different experience, yeah. don't you think? A different personality. And, and see, that's that's definitely true. And there's uh, certainly, if you were going to read the physical magazine or newspaper, it's it's a, it's an analog thing, and as the world becomes more and more digital, analog it gets actually, ironically, more valuable, Agreed. not less valuable, uh, which I've seen now in that's a lot true of others. That's true of vinyl. It's true of vinyl, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the experience I was also thinking about for newspapers is, is for, there's Time Stocks um, for New York Times. Um, there's a lot of different events. I think there's even, um, I think there's some travel opportunities. To, I don't know if the journalists are part of that or, or ju- I don't even know. But it's become uh, a lifestyle. This, yeah, lifestyle. A lot of different, yeah. uh, not, just, not just the news, no right. matter how much it's all fit to print or not. And it's not just the news. And, um, and that's definitely happening in, uh, in retail, but they're... It's hard to imagine that they'd be behind because, as you said, you know, the newspaper business was really vilified for their slow motion. People were... What you know. newspapers do on the weekends is you, when you finish the paper, yep. you, there's, you have a feeling, and that feeling is you feel smarter and you feel hipper. Hmm. You feel like you now know all the, you hmm. know, you now learn that there's some incredible dumpling place in the middle of Queens that nobody <laughs> knows about, or there's this travel place, you know, there's, you know, it's Paris is, you know, you've been there a million times, but now there's a, an area of Paris where the warehouses have just turned into galleries, yeah, and yeah, yeah. now you can go and be the hippest traveler in Paris because mm-hmm. now you know something um, most other people don't. So, you know, the weekend papers have become. Um, uh, zones that reaffirm your sense of smartness and hipness and recharge that battery, I think, every week yeah. as a lifestyle. Uh, so uh, so the articles you write for the Wall Street Journal are probably in that, in that vein because they're, yeah. not, they're, they're not hard news that's going on, but they give people insight into, into music, into, into people, into their childhood. That's, that's the thing. My specialty for them is the human condition. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they're oral histories, both of them, mm-hmm. meaning it's the words of the person talking to me that you read when you're reading the column. Um, you're not reading my take on something. Um, I've taken their words. I interview them, take their words, yeah. and then use their words to create a canvas, uh, to create a story. So if someone's talking to me about childhood, you're actually getting it. Olivia Newton-John is talking to you as you're reading Are all it. the words in the column her words? Or the well, they're, they're her words to an extent. Um, I'm, what I do for my oral history, which makes my oral histories different than really any other that I can think of, is... Um, I use her words as paint, hmm. meaning um, I'm moving things around. Yeah. I'm, I've got a, a structure to the column. Right. And if I just ran everything somebody said, it would run about 35 feet. 
um, and it would extend the length of the column, and it might not be that interesting at all. Mm. But by taking her words and crafting it so it yeah. almost reads like a screenplay mm. with a cinematic opening, mm. a couple of turning points, and a poetic ending, right. um, now it's the human condition. The reader is feeling something. By the, by the time, you know, the reason those columns are popular, I feel, is that when the reader finishes reading them, they feel very human. Mm. They feel they've spent emotional time yeah. with the person who was being interviewed, and they feel they have a finer understanding, and they almost feel sympathy for whatever that person went through mm. uh, on a different level than I, than I could achieve if I had written it yeah. directly. You know, the other thing I, uh, I find remarkable about the, the columns, Mark, is how short they are. <laughs> I, I don't know how you do a thing like that. They're really sh- They're how, many words, how many words in? Uh, the house call column is about 850 okay. to 900, and Anatomy of a Song in print is uh, 850 as well. Oh, oh, a little so, longer online, yeah. about 1,500 words online. So that's in. So that's a kind of a... 850 is a typical column length, I think, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. to your point... Um, I design them and craft them so they move like a dart. That's exactly what I'm reacting to. I'm mm-hmm. thinking in particular the mansion, the house call one. Um, it's, I mean, you read it, it, it you, you read it twice because you want to kind of, it's, it's not a lot of effort to read it twice. That's the that's a good if, thing, right? If I, I don't like wasting people's time. I don't like my time to be wasted. Yep, yep. And I want the drama up front. Don't, don't mm-hmm. make me wait for something that I want. Mm. So by knowing that the reader has the same level of, agitation and yeah. impatience yeah. that I have, right. um, I am very sympathetic to the reader. I want the reader, uh, I, you know, uh, someone said, oh, gosh, I can't believe it. You know, I, I can't wait for your column every week. And, you know, what's the secret? And, you know, it's, I say, if I can get you in the first sentence, you will finish the column. Mm. Because it, it's like going down a sliding pond. Yeah. That's how fast it is. You will fly through it to the right. end and you will be, you'll sort of say, gosh, that went by really, really fast. I mean, it's, um, it's. I mean, to say it's accessible, it's kind of easy. A lot, a lot of good writers are make their work accessible, but it's, it's more than that. Almost, I don't know what the the word Thank is you. for for that. It's just it, you fly you fly through it, and you just you know, it's a blink of an eye, and you got something. Which is why I say you know I often go back and take another look. It says really, did she say that? Uh, so yeah, they, she said it, and they I craft them like screenplays. Yeah. I really craft them like screenplays so that they're cinematic. As you're reading it, you're, you can see it as a film. You're psychologically, unconsciously mm. v- reading it as if you're reading a movie. So that's very interesting. That's, that's a form of communication. Now, where you're con- consciously thinking about creating that mini screenplay for people. Right. And uh, so naturally I'm thinking, what other um, walks of life is that skill set or that capability? Would that be, add a lot of value? So, of course, people giving, in companies giving talks, giving speeches, talk, even your one-on-one with your... Uh, you know, with, with your subordinate when you're in a team. In any business context, uh, I could imagine it would be valuable. But I know there's a lot of stuff in business where people are taught all sorts of communication tools. And there's kind of level one, which, you know, if you don't have that, then, you know, you can't have a sentence with anybody. But that's not what we're talking about. You're not even level two, you're level three or four, because you learn how to tell a story. You want to appeal to people's emotions, you tell a story. You don't just kind of give the facts and figures. Most executives I work with know that. They don't always do it. And intellectually, they know that. Emotionally, mm-hmm. That's it's a little, interesting. Bit, little bit tougher. Uh, but then to go and do the screenplay level, which is now you're giving me a language for this, um, you hardly ever see that. People respond 
better. P- people will absorb information faster if it's visual. Mm. Um, it's just, that's why YouTube's so successful. That's why the movie industry is so successful. That's why people watch TV. They absorb information faster visually. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, I, I've, I've always felt that um, much newspaper writing, much writing in general moves too slowly for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, and if it moves too slowly for me, it moves too slowly for a lot of people. And I realize that to appeal to the most amount of people, to appeal to, to saturate 3.2 million readers, to really reach for 100% of mm-hmm. the universe, um, I needed to make these columns as visual as possible short of a screen. Um, so if I could get people if I could get people in and make them think they're watching it and yeah. not reading it, right. I'd be much more successful mm-hmm. than if I just wrote it and turned a phrase. You know, the other thing that, and the last thing I want to mention about this is your editor or editors, they let you do this. Uh, that's not I love common. my editors. <laughs> I love my editors. Yeah. My editors are, are fabulous, fabulous, uh, talented people. Um, both editors knew early on that this was successful, that it was going to be successful. Yeah. And they realized that there was a, an addictive quality to them, that the formula that I created, two different formulas that I created, were addictive, that there was a, a, a you know, one was music, one's childhood of celebrities. And mm-hmm. I only go after A-list celebrities. I mean, I only go after um, celebrities who are household names. Um, there's... Stars are important. Mm-hmm. You know, the you know people sort of write off stardom. Um, I see stardom as as an incredible quality, and that when people reach that level mm-hmm. of stardom, um, that's a special person. You might yep. not like yep. their acting, or you might not mm-hmm. like their singing, or you not, might not know why they're a star. But if one is a star, they're instantly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then. Once you get to their childhood, you're in, the, in their most vulnerable space, mm-hmm. and you learn that their parents moved all over the country, mm-hmm. or you know they were loners. Uh, you know, I just interviewed someone the other day whose name you know I won't mention because you know the column is yet to come, but she's a very well-known actress, a Hollywood actress, very, you know, very very well-known in major major movies. And I said to her, I, you know, I, I'm just guessing from your acting. I've I've rewatched all of your movies. Um, you seem like somebody, you know, it's hard to figure out, given how, how well off your family was growing up, where you come up with your sensitivity, what mm-hmm. you're reaching for in that well mm-hmm. in your mind to create a sympathetic or sad, you know, to create sadness, to create emotion. I'm guessing that you were a lonely kid. And she said, I don't know how you knew that. Yeah. She says, I spent much of my childhood by myself in the woods behind our house. I just love being alone. I don't, you know, I don't know. I never, but it was just interesting how you, with a column on childhood, you, half the time I'm interviewing people for this column, they're crying by the end of the interview. Mm. At least 40% of the time, um, the person is crying, either because talking about parents or things that happened when they were young. Um, When people go back in time, they become... Um, melancholy yeah. and they become very sensitive mm. especially if you're an artist actors or artists yes. um, musicians I mean they're emotional to begin with so I, I want to take a break in a second yep. you reminded me about we, we mentioned Olivia Newton-John a couple of times and I remember that column she said one thing that really struck me which was um, her grandfather was uh, Max Born famous physicist yeah. Nobel Prize winner no yeah. less right and uh, Libby Newton-John lived in London for a while. Right. And she said something like she regrets that she never went to see him. Yeah. 
That was that was an amazing thing. Uh, you know, we were talking, um, and you have to get people in the zone. You know, for I have to get them in the zone, yeah. and you have to do it very quickly because you don't get much time with these people. So once she was in the zone, and we were talking, and I said, "Did you ever go visit your grandfather? Yes. You were in London," and she said, "No, she didn't." And um, you know, she says, "I regret that." Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, but I'm curious. You know." Why don't you think you did? Mm. And she goes, "Well, I'm not. You know, I'm not quite." I said, "To me, it sounds like you were afraid, like you, you might not measure up. You know, that here's this guy who's mm. almost not human. I mean, mm. he's just an amazing, mm-hmm. amazingly brilliant person, and you're related to him. And meeting him, he might not think highly of you, or he might not see the value of your mm. success, or he might belittle it. He might not say it, but you didn't want to." And she goes, I, you know, I can't remember that last line that she said that I used for the kicker, the end, the yes. last paragraph. Yeah. But she, you know, was she was always afraid that she wouldn't measure up, and she regrets having that silly feeling. Yeah, I read that and I said, how did he get her to say that? I asked that. her. And you asked her, but you asked it the right the right way. Yeah, I mean, I do ten times more research than I should. Huh. Um, I mean, I need to know everything that's been done on them. I need to know everything that's been done video. I need to know everything that's done in the in writing, and then I have to push those things beyond that. I have to push them into what um, what I call the crying zone, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, what uh, an editor called. Um, the Street of Tears, Mark Meyer's Street of Tears. <laughs> yeah. um, but one person did have a very funny a moniker for me. Um, she goes, you're like, she goes, I should be paying you by the hour for this. She goes, you're like the ink shrink. So I thought That's that was very, that was very funny. Yeah, the ink <laughs> shrink was very funny. Because I basically I am psychoanalyzing yeah, them yeah. In, in, a, in a cheap way, you know, a pop way. But it, it's, you know, it's childhood. I, uh, that is so It's Chinatown, Jake. <laughs> it's childhood. We're talking to Mark Myers. Let's take a short break. And now a short commercial break for the SIDCast. That's right, what you are listening to right now. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Mark Myers. He is really interesting, as I'm sure you can tell already. And he is one of uh, dozens of people that we, uh, we talk to on the SIDCast and we get into it. We learn about who they are, how they became who they became, how they think, how they've crafted their lives and their careers. And along the way, pick up all sorts of lessons about what they've done, but also about life itself. And uh, I sometimes uh, I sometimes share this. I don't always do it because it's such a kind of crazy high bar. But I hope as you're listening, you're not only learning about Mark and learning a little bit about me even, but you're learning a bit, uh, a bit more about yourself um, because that's really what I'm hoping uh, people will get out of the out of the sitcast so thanks for listening tell your friends and uh, look forward to uh, to having you with us uh, for uh, many many more podcasts to come now let's get back to it with mark question i'm always asked how did you get them to talk about that Mm -hmm. you know Hmm. how did you get i mean i had an interview subject two weeks ago who called me the piece came out this is house call and she um called me to tell me, the publicist said, look, so-and-so wants to call, call you up and thank you for what, you know, the piece. She, she, says, she says it's better than her book. You know, she just mm. can't believe how you pulled, what you got out of her and everything else. I said, yeah, absolutely. And she called up, and for the first 30 seconds, she was sobbing. I, I didn't even know who it was. Mm. She was crying that um, 
freely yeah. without restraint. Like she yeah. couldn't control herself mm-hmm. when she was trying to tell me this. And it, you know, it tears me up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really did not want to spend my career ratting people out. I really didn't want to spend my career, you know, ask her about, you know, the drug addicted husband. Right. You know, the, right. or the editor saying, you know, great, let's do, let's, let's, but make sure you ask about the kid that died, the miscarriage. Oh. And it's like, I, that's not me. Yeah. You know, I, and in some respects, creating these columns um, allowed me not to have to go there. Right. Because these columns don't do it. But it's also true. You, say, you said it's not me. People really have to be true to who they are in any walk of I life. Agree. And sometimes you, you know, especially earlier in a career, you're trying to figure out well, what's normal, what, what's accepted. And you learn. You learn from mentors. You learn from others. And, and maybe you start to replicate certain things early on. But then the next level is when you realize, you know, first of all, I can't do it as well as that guy or that woman. Right. Uh, but I have something to say here. I got to do it my way. I mean, that's the same way with teaching, actually. Uh, I remember when I started uh, at uh, Dartmouth, uh, we have some master teachers, and I taught a little bit before, but I, uh, I'll say I was average. And I sat in on these subjects. I didn't know those subjects very well, and oh my God. And I took copious notes, but I knew right away if I tried to do what they were doing, it wouldn't work. I had to find my own. I had to find my own voice. And you know, by being you, you become untouchable because you become singular. Mm-hmm. Nobody can. Nobody can, um, nobody, Rolling Stone has tried to do the anatomy of a song. Financial Times tries really? to do it. They yeah. can't do it. No one else can do it yeah. because they don't know my formula for it. They don't know what I'm doing. But you could tell the formula and they still can't do it. Am I right or wrong? Um, As in, here's the five things you got to do. Because I, 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 I think I like think they come closer. I think they come closer. You don't need to help them, but right. But 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 these things are to your to your point, Sid. Um, these things are children of me, right? In other words, yeah. they are. Um, it's it's like a painter. You know mm-hmm. instantly who it is, or a musician. You know who who it is right away. Mm-hmm. If if you you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to guess twice. If like when you hear other people. Um, who recorded Beatles songs, like the Beatles wrote for a number of British groups. As soon as you hear a song, <laughs> by, even by, if it's by another group, you know right away it's, it's the Beatles. There's like, a signature thing. Yeah, the, it's a signature thing. And, uh, you know, that's what I try to create with these columns because, to be honest, um, it's self-preservation, right? In other words, if you are singular mm-hmm. and if you are distinct mm-hmm. and no one can really knock you off... Yep then you basically have that gig till you want to leave it. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about now is competitive advantage and core business ideas, right? right? You got to have, especially today with so many people doing so many Exactly. Things. There's nothing, yeah. if I just made cardboard boxes, there's nothing patentable about <laughs> that. Somebody will, you know, mm. invariably somebody will go to Taiwan and instead of me making them for a dollar, they'll make it for 45 cents yeah. and I blow me out of the market. But if what you do is so distinct and can't be duplicated, then you basically, you basically have a lot in common with a Supreme Court justice. You know, <laughs> you're not getting fired. <laughs> you, know, you got that job for as long as you want it. Yeah. As long as the column, you know, in my case, so long as the column continues to hit it out of the park um, and continues to, um, I, you know, for me, I realized early on that emotion was what set me apart, mm. that I was more emotional 
and I cared more, and I was more sensitive. Mm -hmm. And instead of seeing that as a liability, for the longest time I saw that as a liability. Why is that? Oh, well, you know, it's too soft, I'm too soft, or, you know, I toughen up, or, you know, put on the big boy pants and ask the tough, you know, ask the questions Mm -hmm. that are going to hurt their feelings. Um, And there came a point where I think when I started the Anatomy of a Song column, or it could have been the House Call column. They both started around the same time mm-hmm. during the Wall Street Journal's section expansion. Um, I realized that by being emotional, by letting, by letting emotion drive the columns, mm-hmm. that readers were responding in very strange ways. Mm-hmm. They were becoming emotional. Mm-hmm. They were like, they were following it every week. The readership, the stickiness was incredible because right. people wanted to feel human. They wanted to feel... Life. They wanted to feel. Exactly. Uh, they also want to see how they stacked up. I mean, yeah. they see that these actors that they love had horrible childhoods mm-hmm. or miserable time, and they realize that they realize they're, that these people aren't superior to them. Mm-hmm. They're on the same level. That you know, I had a rough childhood too, and so did Michael Keaton, or so did whoever you're reading about. You know that it's. That they're on that there's a par quality. Yes, so people relate to that and makes them feel a little bit better. Correct. And I think what was it about that person that they overcame this incredibly tough environment growing up or whatever it was? And not everyone, a lot I mean there are plenty of people who lived perfectly good life privileged life and kept on going. Right. You see that in every field, but I don't know if it's true more it might be true for artists, for create in the creative fields. You know, you mentioned your father and what happened, you know, with seeing his own father die. Um, spurred on maybe some of his creativity. So it might be the case that creative people react a little bit differently, but it's It's not unlike the Apple model, really, when you think about it from Mm. a business standpoint. You know, before Apple, it was Windows and it was Microsoft, and it was cold and and not accessible. Mm -hmm. And Apple made technology human. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it... it created its platform, so it it was displaying things in a human way, and yeah. every even today, Alexa and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's just another layering on of human. Even though it's technology, it's mm-hmm. trying to re- relate to people on a people level um, by making this co- these columns um, emotional. They became strangely human mm-hmm. and cinematic and uh, sensitive, and it turns out people. They don't want to read that all the time, but it's nice, you know, when they hit the real estate section, you know, it's the only thing that's not about doorknobs, right? It's the right? only thing. I mean, it's, the human it's actually thing. a really good placement because even if it wasn't as good as it was, the editor was brilliant. Even if it wasn't as good as it was, it is so different than everything else that you're going to stand out. <laughs> the editor was brilliant. And the editor allowed me, no matter what I wanted to do, yeah. you know, I said, what do you think about a piece on Joe Namath and penthouse living in the 60s? And she goes, I love it. Do it. <laughs> and, you know, it came out so wonderfully well. I mean, Joe Namath talking about what it was like to live in penthouses in New York and, you know, all this other stuff. And the funny thing is, um, Joe Namath, his person reached back to me and said, Joe said there was just, you know, if you could fix it online, that would be great. Print hadn't come out yet, mm-hmm. the print version. And he said there was one little, one little mistake. Yeah. And I said, wow, you know, you know what is it? And he goes... The chair in his living room wasn't leopard. He said it's it was snow leopard. <laughs> you know? so that's just, and, and, and he wasn't joking about it, right? Yeah, no, but I mean, he was just, just he was he, just, he didn't care one way or the other. But it was like he he 
Joe Namath was such a far guy, you know, on the field with his far. I mean, you know, he's like the Mick Jagger of football back in the <laughs> Broadway 60s. Broadway Joe. Right. And so if he knows anything, it's that the far wasn't, you know, it was snow leopard, not leopard. He knows that. Yeah, that, that's the but thing. I like the precision thing about De- that. Definitely. Also, which is something yeah. that you see, you know, high achievers sometimes too much. Yeah. Um, and yeah. certainly an athlete at that, that type but of thing. But I was, you know, when, he, when, I heard, when, I, when the publicist was on the phone, I yeah. said, here we go. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Joe's going to say, you know, we I, I, now that I see this, we can't do it. You know, mm-hmm. I just want this pulled. You know, I really thought there was going to be a calamity. And, you know, that, that was his only change. And then yeah. I realized... This is Broadway Joe. This is a guy who threw Hail Marys. I mean, he realizes this, this whole column with him in it, mm-hmm. cast this way, that's a Hail Mary. And he realizes the only way you get attention is if you throw a Hail Mary. Hail, Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. On the plane that Saturday, this was Super Bowl weekend, yep. his publicist said, I said, did Joe like the piece? What, this is Monday after the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, Lou, did, uh, did Joe like the piece? And he goes, he loved it. He goes, in fact, when he got on the plane to fly to New Orleans, everybody on the plane had read it or was reading it, and everybody was saying, great piece in the paper, Joe. <laughs> so he knew instinctively that even though the column was out there, that it was yeah. penthouse living, yeah. Joe Namath, that the Hail Mary, that going for it, there was a quality to that, and that's the space he wanted to be in. Yeah, I mean, it presents Joe Namath a little bit different, exactly. a little different way. And yeah, he he was okay with that. In fact, he, not he more got than it. okay. He wanted that. He totally got yeah. it. Yeah. So let's let's talk about yep. the the anatomy of a song. And first of all, how do you get all these people? You you, you interview Keith Richard. I mean, you, you, there's no one that you're not getting to. Twice, I Joni Mitchell. Twice. I think is that true? I spent two hours at Joni's house when I wanted to do that this was column. In the book, I think. Yeah, the... she wanted me to come out to uh, her home what in was, L.A. What was she? What was she like? I'm such a uh, fanboy. This of was Joni before Mitchell. she got sick, which yeah. was great because yeah. um, we had two hours in the afternoon, like October in L.A. And October in L.A., <laughs> the light is almost like in Amsterdam. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a strange light. It's it's summer hasn't quite left yet, mm-hmm. and fall is kind of in the clouds, mm-hmm. but the weather is still kind of warm and um Joni was um fascinating fascinating uh, in terms of how she articulated uh, what she wanted to talk about in this case we were doing Carrie from her album Blue mm-hmm. um and I wanted to know the story behind it and who Carrie was and w- what the writing of that song was like in Crete and then I wanted to know how it was recorded right she, that's and when she talked about uh, she that, really got the, into what it was it the redhead what did she call him in the song a na- um, uh, nasty old man yeah. or bad old I can't remember bad <laughs> yeah, old yeah, man. Yeah. yeah but um, Joni had a very interesting way the thing that I think I may have mentioned in the book although I'm not sure is uh, she she has an interest had a, has an interesting way of saying something mm-hmm. And then taking a drag on her cigarette, which I hope to God she's no longer smoking, because that afternoon was just one after the next. Um, She has a way of saying something and then looking at your eyes Mm. the way a mother looks at the school bus when their kid gets on to make sure they're walking through and sitting down where they are. Like the mother watching to see where the kid sits. She wanted to make sure you got what she was saying. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was and it instinctive. Meant that much to her. Yeah, and it was instinctive. Yeah. Like she'd say something, and then there'd be a drag, and mm. she'd pause, and she'd yeah. be watching her children, the mm. words, yeah. get on the school wow. bus and sit down. It was and very that, interesting to uh, yeah. to observe. What that. was Keith Richards on? Um, Keith is just so much fun. 
He's like an amusement park ride. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just know you're getting on the roller coaster. You're yeah. going to get the big, you know, it's going to be fun as can be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the thing about Keith is that um, the front the front half of Keith is a lot of show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's living up. It's sort of that reputation he has. He, he That's his brand. And he, he knows yeah. how to curry it. He knows yeah. how to tease it out. Mm-hmm. But the back half of Keith is a is a... Um, is a historian. Is a this guy knows every every single blues song known to mankind. Mm. Knows the artist. Knows the guitar riffs. Knows how the, the, the song plays out. Um, he's he's a very he's very deep on the back end, but he's shy. You know, there's a shyness to Keith. Yeah. And once you get past, once you get beyond the brand, mm. and you get to the back of the store, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and you reach that guy. Mm. You reach the. You know, when I was interviewing him for uh, his first solo album. Um, talk is cheap, and we were talking about take it so hard. Um, you know, he there was a couple of sensitive, mo- really sensitive moments mm-hmm. there where you know I asked him, would you ever let the Rolling, you know, would you let Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, do this song? I mean, it sounds perfect for the Stones, mm-hmm. and he goes, no, 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 I'd, I'd keep those things have to stay separate. Yeah. And I could hear him ruminating, and mm-hmm. he was no, no. He was sort of reaffirming. He was saying, no, 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 no. He said. Uh, Stones, all the stones. And it was, you could hear him, he was so far away, mm. yet soulfully he was so close. Yeah. The proximity um, was right there. And, uh, you know, when you get artists in that place, especially artists who are on stage, I mean, artists, who, who, rock, rock stars by definition are narcissists. That it's baked into that. Mm. I mean, the reason you and I aren't in concert all There's the time. There's a lot of reasons in my case. Yeah, no, no, but I'm saying. Talent. No, no, but, but <laughs> even if you had the talent, unless you're a narcissist, yeah. you can't do it. You have to get out there and you've got to take control of 25,000 people and give them a show for two mm. hours that, they've, that they're going to go home and talk about. And it doesn't matter whether you're feeling sick or you have a headache. Yeah. You have to get out there yeah. and, and take get, control. And there's very few people. You know, it's like baseball players. You know, there's there's like three million baseball players who are good enough to play on any team, mm-hmm. but they don't have what those in the major leagues have. There's that little extra ingredient mm-hmm. that they just don't I, have. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I mentioned this before about Michael Jordan. Once when he was asked, how do you bring it night after night after night? You are like, you leave nothing on, on you know, in the locker room. It's all out there. And he, and he answered, because there could be, you know, if, a kid up there, a person up there in the audience in the, in the stands that never saw me play. And I don't want them to go home thinking that I didn't give everything I had. Every, every rock star I've interviewed, the audience is first and foremost. Mm-hmm. They live for the audience. Wow. The audience is everything. Um, they, they, they don't show it because they're afraid, like if they're having to sign autographs and stuff, because they're, they're more afraid of fans than fans are nervous Why to meet them. Because they're afraid of violence happening to yeah, them. Sure. They're afraid that somebody's crazy. Yeah. They're afraid that the person is going to stalk them. Yeah, and they're going, to, you know, they're going to have a hell of a time with security and everything else. And they all have that. Mm. You know, they all have that anyway. Mm. But that's what they're most terrified of, is, is 
harm to them and their families. Right. And the music business seems to have changed a lot with respect to live performance because, you know, what does it cost to listen to a song? It's no longer CDs out. Never virtually free. Yeah, virtually free. And so it seems like the only part of this industry that's making a lot of money is like Live Nation or others that are putting on these shows. Is, is that your take as well? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at Billboard and you go to the back of Billboard, yeah. you'll see that the box office take mm-hmm. is extraordinary. Hmm. You know, fifty eight million at this venue, six million. Wow. You know, box office here, three million there, seventeen million here. Hmm. You know, there's a reason why bands are still touring today. Yeah. Um, half of them didn't write enough songs and need the money hmm. um, because they're not getting royalties off of songs, and the other half um, do it because the amount of money they're being offered to do it is you'd be nuts right you know go out for four months and you wind up with 40 million dollars why wouldn't you you know the tickets are incredible now you know they're they're massive but people are showing up in you know madison square garden they're showing up you know in in, you know hollywood bowl if you want to take a smaller place they're, they're showing up everywhere so they're willing to pay the money. Live music takes you back in time to when you went to your first concerts. Yeah. It's a place where parents take their kids, mm. which it wasn't the case when you and I were little. And it's <laughs> also a place where you're, you're, it's, it's the human experience, like I was talking about with my column. Yeah. You're actually able to see the artist, right. it's, and I mean, you it, hear the imperfections, and life. you hear the flaws, and it's go, the song's too fast, yeah. and you see what they're doing, and you're... You know, it's it, you're you're there, and you're seeing this human thing, right. and you right. in return feel human. Uh, yeah, um, I want to ask you about two or three other artists that you you obviously know them. You may have interviewed them uh, as well. Um, Bob Dylan. Never interviewed Bob Dylan, although he said yes at one point, yeah. and to Anatomy of a Song, and he's highly mercurial and yeah. said suddenly said no. Right. Um, but at least I wasn't the Nobel Committee. <laughs> well said. Right. I didn't have to prepare things and then find out he's not coming. Um, That's right. I guess if he, uh, um, that would have been interesting that he does anatomy of a song, but he's not going to do the Nobel. With all due respect, not doing the Nobel Prize. Right. Now he said yes, and we were, you know, ready to go. And uh, I even, you know, went off to London to do a bit of research. And then it was, you know, he decided not to. So again, I, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, it, it, at this point. Um, because to, for, for artists not to do it mm. is, um, it's a shame. Well, Dylan is in his own universe, of yeah, course. It's or like, how about, you know, uh, Leonard Cohen? Never uh, interviewed. Who he, I, does, he, never, he does not do interviews. He you, does very rarely right. did interviews. When you talk about the experience of seeing someone live, I always regret that I never went to see him because yeah. he had that second coming for I don't know I how know. many years. He was always Madison on the road. Square Garden. It was just incredible. Time, yeah. and so you listen to some of the, um, yeah. the albums now. It's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, and then Tony Bennett. Yeah, Tony's, he's, I've interviewed him five times. Wow. Uh, and uh, they were always in his art studio as well. Yeah, he's quite um, So that's his real intimate space. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've always had... Um, he knows I'm a, he knows I'm heavily into jazz. Uh, that's the interesting thing about me as a rock writer. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the, I'm really one of the only rock writers who is more well versed in jazz yes. than almost rock. Right. And that's a plus. That's gotten me in the door quite a few that's times. That's a plus for some of the artists. Yeah, because for for a lot of rock artists that's classical music. 
you know, if you're mm. if you're a jazz writer and you listen to jazz and you know all about jazz mm-hmm. and jazz is your thing, that's a whole nother level of respect in terms of a writer. Um, they, they run into writers all the time who know all about their lives. Yeah. You know, what they had for dinner when mm. they were seven. Mm. I mean, they know there's people who know, right. you know, the Rolling mm. Stones inside and out yeah. or, yeah. you know, any of these artists. But as a jazz writer and as someone who loves jazz and listens to jazz and has spent years writing about it, um, you know, that's a different level of cred. You know, it's a different level of cred. You don't have to wait online. You get the VIP treatment. You get you get in there emotionally with you, them. You get you get in yeah, there. Yeah, because they want to talk about yeah. favorite jazz. Yeah, you know, they really want to talk about other things. Right. You know. Right. So how did you like? How did you get into jazz? Like, where did this start? Because um, you said you know you were a kid and you were listening to uh, um, an album and you realized I, I can't do that. So you listened pretty young, I think. Yeah, the, for me, um, it was two things. One, I was introduced to jazz probably when I was about 10 or 11 mm. because um, I think it was 12 actually Billy Taylor came to my junior high school in New York the mm. pianist came to came to the school um, and played a live set and gave out 45s of his hit song at yeah. the time yeah. um, and I loved it I really loved it and then AM radio also had a, a few instrumental jazzy hits at the time uh, Soulful Strut by Young Holt Unlimited, um, even The In Crowd by, uh, you know, I mean, there were certain yeah. things that were funky, but they were jazzy. Um, and there was jazz in a lot of stuff. The Fifth Dimension was very jazzy. Mm. So I gravitated toward that. Um, the other thing is, I, I wasn't a drug user. You know, I wasn't somebody who, you know, had to go to San Francisco and mm. get, you know, and I, I didn't hate my parents, you know, the way some <laughs> of my friends did, where they were just dying to leave home and get out. Um, so for me, when the music got psychedelic and got really druggy, yeah. um, I didn't understand it any longer. I, it wasn't... Pop rock I loved. I mean, I loved the top 40 and listened to the transistor radio under my pillow. But when album rock came in, and a lot of it was psychedelic in the mm-hmm. late 60s and early 70s, um, it didn't resonate with me. Yeah. I didn't connect with it. I didn't mm-hmm. understand it. And jazz I did understand. And by mm-hmm. listening to jazz, um, it I just went deeper and deeper and started to go backstage and at clubs and hang out with musicians back there. And it was a, it was a... It was a different level of music for me. Did you ever play any instrument yourself? Yeah, as I mentioned, I, I play piano. Yeah. Um, but my brother's the pianist. Yeah. I, for me, playing piano, especially jazz, which is what I wanted to do, yeah. was always like a dancer looking at his or her feet. Um, it just never was completely natural. Right. right. And you have to hit a zone, like with anything, sports or anything. You have to hit a zone mm. where it's just coming naturally not even mm-hmm. thinking about it mm-hmm. and I was thinking too much mm-hmm. when I was playing and that's really why I realized it just wasn't it wasn't piano music wasn't going to be for me but then I spent the next three decades doing other kinds of writing I mean I didn't come to music writing until late not until 2010 2010 yeah yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I was a financial writer. I was a real I wrote for all the major real estate companies yeah, in New yeah. York. I'd go in and interview their their CEOs for their newsletters. Um, I did uh, you know work for Fidelity. Um, you know, I was in magazine. I mean, it was it was everything and anything except music. And then finally in 2010, through a series of fate, fate and accidents, mm. um, 
I wound up doing what I'm doing yeah. and wound up writing about music and mm-hmm. then wound up writing about rock for one of the country's largest newspapers with an enormous audience. It was it was like, you know... You, you, you ever wonder, how, how did that ever happen? It was happen? a dream come true. <laughs> you're you were know? talking to, you know, all these financial people and real estate people and all of a sudden you're... Yeah. You're spending yeah. Five, it was a series of very yeah. funny accidents. Yeah. Um, I, I knew I was very close with a, a fellow. I was very close with Terry Teacher. Yeah, the name is probably familiar to you. Yeah. He's um, one of the Wall Street Journal. He's a critic for the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. but he writes on drama and he writes on the arts. And we're very fr- we're very close. We started getting together every sat- uh, a Saturday morning every quarter to listen to jazz since mm-hmm. the mid '90s. Mm-hmm. And I was doing financial writing, and Terry was writing books and writing for commentary Mm -hmm. and at one point he turned to me in 2007 and he said you really have to blog and I said I don't have time for that Terry Mm. he goes there's nobody busier than I am and I blog you have to it's the future I said fine in a week from now I will have a blogger I will come up with a name and you know that was jazz wax that's what you call it right from the get go right from the beginning Yeah. yeah because it's jazz and then it's wax the, the so-called billboard or variety nickname for records, which was Wax, if you go back Albums. in time. Yeah, Wax was what, what Variety used as a sh- in shorthand for records, the Wax industry. You know, Wax, big, sign, exec, you know. So jazz Wax, but then it's also expounding, right? So it had a, it had a mm-hmm. double entendre, a double meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started that in 2007, and we, Terry and I continued to listen to music, and at one point... He turned to me on a Saturday morning, and he said, "You know too much." <laughs> he said, "You have to be writing for the. You really have to write for the journal." And I said, "Okay." I said, that "Sounds good." Yeah. Well, I, he well, said, well, "I'm going to si- set up a lunch, and we're going to have lunch with my editor. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be writing." And uh, I met with his editor, mm-hmm. who's the greatest guy. I mean, he's just such a wonderful editor. And he um, he said. You know, give me some ideas, and let's let's see what we let's see what we can do. And I gave him this really off offbeat idea on the widows of jazz legends who were maintaining their legacies, just barely. Hmm. In other words, like Art Pepper's wife. There's a, there's a number of jazz yeah. artists, hmm. widows, you know, spouses who have struggled over the years to retain their legacy, even though their husbands were gone. Um, and there weren't that many of them. There were only about three or four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, but they managed to do it because most of them didn't have enough business sense to mm-hmm. negotiate with record labels and set up, you know, things and ways of pushing their their uh, former spouse's yep. legacies. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, he the editor loved it and it ran. And I did one more. I think I interviewed Little Richard for him. Was maybe the next one that I did. And mm-hmm. um, you know, everything I sent in. Um, was through the you know it, I reread them today. I'm astonished at <laughs> I'm astonished how good they are. To be honest with you, um, and then he started sending me all over the place to mm. interview. Then I started this entire series for that uh, for this editor on at home confessional interviews, uh, what I called action interviews actually, where I would I did about sixty of them where I would go to a, a, a very famous person's home 
interview them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I would get them to do something during this interview that I would use in the first paragraph. So when I went and interviewed Jerry Lee Lewis, he showed me how he did the piano runs with his thumb. Yeah. Or with Fats Domino, I got him to put his hand on the back of my hand and show me what, what, it, what I said, play the back of my hand like a piano. And I got to feel what mm. Fats Domino... And those, you would write about that? Yeah, that would be... That would almost always be my lead. Because that's so visual, what you're that describing. That would be my lead in almost every situation. Yeah. Um, it would be the act, what I called the action lead. And the editor loved it. It was a formula. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah, it was yeah. something nobody else was doing, mm-hmm. which is going to these people's homes, these celebrities' homes, uh, musician, you know, artists, and getting them to show you the thing they were most famous for. Right. So... Right. Wow. Uh, When I read Jazz Wax, um, I am really kind of surprised at how much is in each one of these (laughs) blocks. Like, is he ever going to run out of stuff? I mean, why do you put so much into each one? It's, it, you're, I, you're, I only know one. I, so that's I only all you know, know one way. That's all. You, you but know, it's the opposite to kind of the the, the method you use for the uh, the house call column. Well, no, you know the amount of work I do for each house call. It just does. You don't see it it's on the probably, back end. I mean, it's hard to write. I do an like enormous that, so amount of research. Enormous amount of research, so that when I'm interviewing them, I'm not. Do, I'm not. If I didn't do that research, yeah. I would be doing a Wikipedia entry, right? Mm-hmm. It would just be, you know, there would it, no, no, of course. be so all you could find the, all that information for the reader else. or the listener. Yeah, it's very, it's a very different experience. So, but back to jazz, why, yeah. why, why do you kind of do that? It's so much. It's like go. It's, it's almost like you could take a course with your maybe some people do this with your blog people because said that. there's a lot of links and you start, so sometimes I have time I click on a few and I'm and I listen and say. That's cool. And then once you start that, you, there's there's this link and there's that link, and next thing you know, you know, three hours went by and you're listening to stuff. The best compliment <laughs> I get is somebody writing me telling me they're going broke reading my reading my <laughs> jazz rights because they they wind up buying the album oh or something. God, yeah. um, when jazz means so much to me emotionally, mm. um, you know, Bill, I don't care who it is. If the the great artists um, gave me so much and. Um, Gave me so much poetically, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a world that is very special for me. I vowed when I started Jazz Wax that I wouldn't I wouldn't stop it no matter what. Mm. I would do it six days a week, and I would always make it great, informative, educational, yeah. because I owed it to these musicians as mm-hmm. payback. I felt I really needed to pay them back. I needed to keep their memories alive. Mm-hmm. I needed to show people why they were special. Yeah. I needed to turn them on to things they may not have known about. And I needed to put them in context so that people saw them dramatically, not as somebody playing an instrument they didn't know how to play. Right. Yeah. So it's, a, it's paying it back for me. It's, it's, um, well, it's I know it's, a, it's kind of this crazy, gigantic service to <laughs> jazz fans, whether they know a lot or, or a little. Um, it's just every time there's something new and kind of cool. Yeah, I'm always striving because <clears throat> I know that there are so many jazz heavyweights that read it. I mean, as you can see from my weekend weekend posts, you know, I'll hear from Chuck Israels or Alan Broadbent or, you know, Gary Burton will write. I mean, yeah. the jazz, jazz legends read jazz wax and they often correspond. Mm-hmm. Um, but f- they know, they know why I'm doing it. I mean, they feel it. They, 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 they're they intuitive. It. Yeah. And they understand that I created, I did like about 300, when I, when I was doing financial writing, I had a lot of extra time. I could make my nut, I could make my money, and then I had like an afternoon free. Mm-hmm. And I would always interview 
I would track down these little known jazz people who mm-hmm. were on like tons of albums, like Danny Bank, you know, baritone saxophone, who's on like every single <laughs> album you can think of, um, or Hal McCusick. I tracked down all these people and did interviews with them, Q and A's, and then just put them up for free. So at Jazzwax, there are about 350 interviews with jazz legends. Half of like Chris Connor, I interviewed Chris Connor, and you know she was crying at the end of that interview. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, but it's a very I love emotion. You know, I love the emotional place, and those jazz interviews, they're up there so that people can read them and hear the voices of people who are on their albums. Yeah, it's not, I don't charge for that at all. It's it's I'm paying these people back mm-hmm. for the joy and the enrichment they've given me. That's it. It's a pact. It's a pact with ghosts. Mm-hmm. Wow. A pact with ghosts. Yeah. If you write a book about it, that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. that. Uh, well, you said it. You should. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Chris Connor. So are there more women getting into jazz? There are. Because yeah. it's, it's there so, are. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. Of course, there's Ella Fitzgerald and Etta James. There are some legendary women, but right. it's like 99.99% men. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, for the longest time, it's been a male thing. Yeah. You know, it sort of has this locker room quality about it where only guys can understand what j- other guy jazz musicians are playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has the guys, you know, it, it, it's the testosterone, you know, the, it, it's, it's everything that sports has, but it's in music, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this male thing. But what's fascinating is there have always been great women jazz artists, mm-hmm. whether it's Mary Lou Williams or Marion McPartland or Hazel Scott. I mean, there's just a lot of them, yeah. more than you would realize. Yeah. Um, Patty Bone, Melba Liston. Uh, but um, there are more today. It's, it, it's so, it's so, um, it's such a joy to see women coming into jazz and mm-hmm. playing well. Yeah. Um, I just wrote about this woman, Roxy Koss, a couple of weeks ago, um, who is a saxophonist. She plays flute, clarinet, no, flute, uh, clarinet, soprano saxophone. I think she plays flute as well. But what I loved about this album, the reason I wrote about it, is because the entire album was her take on Me Too. So really? it's not, yeah, it's not just that women are coming in and playing like Sonny Rollins. Yeah. They're coming in and they're, they're, they're bringing their politics with mm-hmm. them, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're taking, jazz is political music. Again, it's bringing that singularity of each person. Yeah. And not copying what others have done. Yeah. And they're while bringing, respecting what they've done. Absolutely. And it's not like the music's haranguing you about something. Yeah, I right, mean, it's just right. that you can feel the, you can feel the person's, the artist's emotion in each song and how they feel about this and how they were heard about something and how they, you know, are fighting for something. They're fighting for justice. Jazz is a justice music. Mm. It's always been a justice music. It's, it's music. I don't care whether it's the blues or R&B or jazz. Mm. It's music about fairness, equality, a sh- get, getting a shot, mm-hmm. a fair shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's about rights civil rights or women's rights um, but for the most part the best jazz has that built in um, and bebop even though there's no political obvious political agenda it's political music it's african americans suddenly being given the chance to be a solo artist and to improvise and to show 
their unique ability as an artist, mm. not in the context of a large band where yep. they get a solo that's been written out for them, but now they can say whatever they want. That's, that's political. The blues are political. It's about the downtrodden. It's an economic music. So um, jazz and its subsidiaries or its <laughs> cousins, yes. um, it's, it's wonderful to hear women coming into this music with an expression, not just... Um, a desire to sound like others. And what about, Mark, when you interview women in jazz? Are they telling you stories of discrimination? I mean, the whole there's that album that's all about Me Too that you just yeah, described. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, um, I, has it been the same as it, as it is in so many other fields? Yeah. Or maybe even worse? No. It, it, women, women, what, women I've interviewed have been very confessional. Yeah. Um, you know, if you read the interview I did with uh, Meredith D'Ambrosio, a singer and pianist, and and screenplay writer and painter. I mean, she's extraordinary. She's a renaissance woman. But if you read that interview I did with her, um, it's harrowing. Mm. And if you read my interview with Jackie Kane, who, you know, of Jackie and Roy fame, people may not know them, but if you go onto YouTube and type in Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most and it's Jackie and Roy, you'll, you'll hear why they're special. She talked at length, you know, before she passed away, she talked at length about her daughter's death, oh. her daughter getting hit by a car. Mm. Um, it was an auto accident. I can't remember whether she's in the car or outside the car, but yeah. what a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was a tragic thing, and mm. she was very um, emotional and open about it as a human being, not right. just an artist, but as someone who experienced something no one would want to experience. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Let's take one last quick break with Mark Myers and come right back with a couple of final questions. As we take this uh, little break, I just want to do a little commercial for my guest today, um, ja- uh, Mark uh, Mark Myers, and his uh, blog Jazz Wax. If you're interested in jazz at all, this is the the go to uh, place. I uh, I've learned so much by uh, by just uh, clicking uh, on his uh, on his blog. He goes in depth with with uh, all kinds of performers, knows who they are, knows who they where they perform, what they did, uh, and has a bunch of clips as well. So it's a uh, it's a treasure trove of uh, of information about jazz and uh, and a great way to learn about all sorts of uh, all sorts of people. Jazz Wax by Mark Myers. Okay, we're back with Mark Myers. Here is our last little session. And Mark just said, let's make a lightning round. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, okay. So uh, uh, here, uh, here goes. Um, okay, Mark, imagine that you can transport yourself back next to the Mark Myers of 21 years old. You're sitting next to him and uh, you're leaning over and you're, gonna, and you're telling him, I've got one thing you really need to know. What, what would it be? Don't waste time on things you are not passionate about. Spend as much, as much of your life on things that you're passionate about because if you don't, um, you, you know, by the time you do start, do, by, by, by the time you are doing what you're passionate about, you'll wish you had started a lot sooner. Yeah, yeah. What about your, your father, your mother? What's one bit of advice you remember that they, I'm sure it was a lot of things, but if there's one thing that jumps out that they... Uh, my Talk mother you. taught me to be sensitive. Um, she also taught me a lot about women um, in terms of respect and in terms of fairness. Um, and what my father taught me is to do the opposite of whatever he does. <laughs> That's very good. Now, he didn't tell me to do that. <laughs> but you learned that. But I did learn that. You yeah, learned I, that. I did the opposite of, of what he uh, 
of what he did. Like he, he'd always be late to the airport. Oh. I'm always early to the airport. So it's yeah. funny about that. Yeah. You know, the, people learn to do. I don't know if it's always this way, but they do what they saw their parents do, or the opposite. And there's not always a logic to the two of them. Yep. But, right. Um, uh, if you could magically start your career over, kind of take a mulligan. I mean, I can't imagine you would do anything other than jazz. But is there something else you could, you would do if you could just kind of make that happen? No, uh, I only would have um, <clears throat> every. You know, I only would have started doing what I'm doing now yeah. sooner. Yeah. Uh, but of course, my wife says you wouldn't have been prepared. Mm. Which is an interesting concept. Yeah. That it only happened. You only wound up in your dream job in 2010 because you were finally prepared to do it that you probably couldn't have done it if you didn't have all the other experiences. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting I as mean, well. That's a totally Zen idea. I, lo- I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I bet, uh, and, and I bet it's true for a lot of people and not everybody, some people will be in a hurry and jump to it and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but there is a, and people that get started too early, get sick of it. They start, to, it's like working in the bakery, you know, you can't eat cake. After a while, really, <laughs> <laughs> certain bakeries. Um, but yeah. I think um, you know I have a deep appreciation, and uh, you know I find writing for the journal it's a privilege that they've given me, and yeah. I, I never I never think of it any different than a privilege. Yeah, you know when people have gratitude for people around them and things they do, they're so much happier. It's I agree. It's one. It's yeah. another Zen thing, you know, because you figure. It's the opposite of a sense of entitlement, which is the worst thing that when you see people with that. It's awful. Yeah. You mentioned your, your wife. How did you guys meet? We met at the New York Times. We met at the New York Times. I was working in sports um, at the time. This was in the early 80s. And um, my wife was on the business side. And I had a page in the, what was Sports Magazine. It was like a Sunday supplement that was for sports. Yeah. And I had done a piece on the back, the very last page, and I wanted to get the advanced issue. And what that meant is, um, the those the, the magazine was available in inside the inside the newspaper on Wednesdays for for that Sunday. You could get it, it first came off the presses that Wednesday, and you could get a copy of it. And I called somebody downstairs in mm-hmm. the business side to mm-hmm. get it, and by, the the number by accident went to Elise, my wife. <laughs> And I went downstairs, and she had me sit in her office. And she says, "I have the uh, I have the magazine for you." And nine months later, we got married. Wow! Yeah. So okay, I have the magazine for you. Right. What's the next sentence? The next thing led to you know oh you know a couple of jokes back and forth, Ever, and yeah. you know you you know it'd be fun if we you know would you like to go out? Yeah, let's you know, let's do that. Um, so this was not an online uh, arrangement here. No, this was the old days when a guy actually had to ask a woman out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, is a, this, is a, this is an old school. It's actually a question I should be asking uh, everyone uh, because it just goes to show you, yeah, you know, the whole world did operate a different way and totally it seemed different. to have worked yeah. somewhat okay. Yeah. You know? yeah, you had to actually get up the courage. Yeah. Last, last question is back, uh, back to jazz. If you had, uh, if you had one wish for, uh, uh, for jazz music and ja- jazz musicians, what would it be? Hmm. Um, well, first, I thought what you're going to ask me is if you could go, if you could be anybody in, if you could, if you could snap your fingers and be in any band, or you know, what would you want to be? The answer to that one, I'll, I'll just answer quickly, um, even though it's not your technically <laughs> your question. Um, I would love to be a tenor saxophonist in Count Basie's band, sitting next to Eddie Lockjaw Davis. 
Well, I, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but that, I would love to play in the Basie band of the early 1960s. That would that if I could play saxophone in that band, mm-hmm. that I'd love to. I'd love to go back in time and be able to do that for do you, a day. Do you ever dream about that? No, I mean that's just. Like, I don't mean dream as in purposeful dream, but yeah. dream that you can't control the dream. Yeah, no, I, you know it, it's like if I if I see a clip on YouTube of the saxophone section, you know the Basie bands yeah. playing in the early '60s, man, that saxophone section was great. I would love to be in that band. So, but getting back to your your original question, what do I wish for? Like, what, what would you like to see in the world of jazz? in the next five or ten years that does, that's I'd like to see right um, jazz musicians kick the American songbook habit um, mm. we've, we've got enough Cole Porter renditions of everything uh, there's enough My Funny Valentines we've got mm-hmm. it all, all we, you know, we've got them all mm-hmm. plenty um, I wish more jazz musicians would bring a political sensibility or a personal sensibility to the album and, and make it their own um, in a very personal way, rather than constantly playing standards that everybody's playing over and over again. Yeah. It's become a repetitive music form mm-hmm. that is stuck in this songbook rut. It's very interesting. You bring up you know the, the American songbook and rock and roll uh, stars. I mean Rod Stewart, Bob Dylan. Uh, everyone is everyone's gone back to it. So one it's a testament to the power of those unbelievable songs. Maybe you're saying it's a testament to something else, which is, you know, this is hot, let's go and do it, I can do my thing, and it takes away from true originality. I th- that's, that's well put. Um, you know, jazz, for me, is a personal, emotional expression mm-hmm. that pushes a f- an art form further. It, it, you know, it, it, it moves it down the line further. Um, jazz stays alive when it continues to evolve. If it stops evolving, it's dull. It's boring. It's just not interesting. And we're in that kind of space now. Uh, but like I said, this woman, Roxy Koss, and I'm, you know, there's plenty of others who are bringing this young sensibility where they're bringing a personal, emotional component to the to jazz playing so it's improvisation but they're not trying to sound like somebody else and they're not playing songs we've heard to death they're they're creating but they're creating at a very high level because it's emotional it's personal it's you know i don't know what this person's roxy costa's history is but she's sick and tired of being pawed by a guy for you know she's sick and tired of whatever she's sick and tired of yep. it was in that music yeah. it was baked in and there you hear it and you see yeah it. and it was like good for you you know good for you yeah. right wow mark mark myers thanks so much for being Sid, on the podcast this has been great I, really great you got me open you really opened me up uh, well yeah. coming coming from a master like you yeah. that's as good a compliment as i'm gonna get nicely done <laughs> all right